So Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, This is verse 18 we've just read, and now 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So Paul begins by uh, saying this. He says that the knowledge of God and that he exists is self-evident. It's something that everyone should know uh, because it's so obvious. And yet many people decide to suppress this truth. Now, an image I like to think of is uh, imagine you had a big beach ball about this big, right? You took it down to the beach and you tried to put all your weight on top of it and keep it under the water, what would happen to the ball when you try and do that? Just bounce back up, wouldn't it? (laughs) Trying to suppress that big uh, beach ball is actually not that useful. It'll just come back up. That's just how things are. That's kind of what the truth of God is like. It's something that's so obvious, no matter how much you try and push it down, it always springs back up because it is true. So now Paul's going to tell us why is it so obvious that God exists? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, that's you and me, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a very sad passage to read here, but Paul says that God exists is so obvious because look at the world around us, look at the beauty of creation. Everything in creation, everything in the world that we see shows us that there is a creator, that God uh, exists, that he's real and that he is present in our world. So this is something that everyone can observe. Everyone can observe that God is a creator. And yet, this obvious truth is suppressed. It's put down. People refuse to glorify God or thank him for all of the many blessings that he gives. And eventually, it leads to what Paul says, futility of thought and foolishness of heart. Very sobering words given by Paul. He then continues on in verse 22, and this is the the title of my sermon. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So Paul's getting a bit pointed now because he says, how silly is this? That God exists is so obvious you can see in everything is created that God is the creator. And instead of worshipping God as the creator, people decide to worship the things that he's created. They worship created things rather than the creator. And it's a bit of a, he rightfully says that it's a foolish thing. So people imagine that they're being wise by refusing to worship God, when in reality, Paul says it's foolish. Now, it's 
Paul's very right, because if you worship God, you're worshiping someone who's all-powerful, who's all-loving, who can do anything for you. But when you worship an idol of uh, an animal uh, or a a made-up deity or made-up God, or perhaps the most futile and sad worshiping of self, well, what can all of those things do for you? They can't do everything that the Creator God, the God who created the universe, can do for you. So in wanting to worship something other than God, you actually take a big step down. You take a a downgrade in what you worship because what you worship can no longer actually do anything useful for you. It can't bless you. It can't give you love. It can't give you an intimate relationship like God can. So Paul is right when he says people think they're wise when they decide I'm not going to worship God. But really it's foolish because you miss out on all of the blessings that God is able to give. But that's sadly not the only thing that happens to those who decide to not worship God. Verse 24, Paul continues, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So God, uh, Paul says that what God does, when people decide to not worship him and worship idols of human beings and animals and all sorts of creatures, he decides to let them uh, worship what they want to worship. God's not a dictator who demands worship. He, he desires it, he wants it, but when people decide that they're going to give their worship to something else, God allows them to do that. But not only that, God then allows them to suffer the natural consequences of their choices. That's something parents do a lot with their children, don't they? Uh, they advise them, if you do this, something bad's going to happen, and the kid insists they want to do it, and so the parent will sometimes, usually, usually they'll try and prevent this, but sometimes allow the child to, to choose the, or to follow through with the action they desire and face the consequence of that in order to teach them a lesson, uh, to, to teach them that that choice is not a good one and that they should instead make the right choice. So God does the same. Sometimes, well, often God respects, not respects, allows us to make poor choices, but he does it in hopes that we'll realize this is not the right thing and we'll turn back to doing the right thing. So Paul says that uh, when God does that, he lets people follow the lusts of their hearts. So this is all of those sinful desires that we have. And that unfortunately, it leads to dishonoring our bodies, dishonoring the bodies so the behavior that comes with a denying of worshiping God, it, it ultimately hurts us. It ultimately harms us. And how sad is it in verse 25 that Paul says they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie? How sad is it, is it to worship a lie or to follow a lie rather than to follow the truth? So now Paul's going to give us an example of of God giving up people to the lusts of their heart and dishonoring of their bodies. He's going to give us an example 
of one way in which that sin, uh, God giving people up to sin, uh, happens in the real world. So verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of women burned in lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. So Paul, he gives as kind of like the model example of uh, the consequence of refusing to worship God and, and giving over to sinful lusts and passions. He gives sexual immorality and specifically he refers to homosexuality. He refers to this uh, as God giving up Uh, giving up people in order to dishonor their bodies. Now, this is why Charles Spurgeon said that this should never be read in public company. Uh, If you went back 100, 150 years when Spurgeon was alive, behavior like this was unheard of. It was completely taboo. Today, we're we're nowhere near as offended reading a text like this uh, because it's an accepted and embraced part of our culture which is why I think it's a lot more acceptable to read Romans 1 today than it was in the time of Spurgeon. But it's interesting that Paul uses an example that's so dependent on creation. Remember, he said, it's so obvious God exists, just look at creation. And so when he decides to use an example of rejecting God, he chooses a type of sin that's so obvious in creation that man and woman are are perfectly uh, made for each other. Something so obvious that we see in all of nature around us, even in the animal kingdom. It's such an obvious truth. And Paul says, look what happens when we deny worshipping God. We deny such obvious truths that are evident in creation itself and instead follow the lie. And what's sad is that... uh, really what God does in Romans 1 by giving over people to their sinful desires the giving over is actually part of the punishment itself let's have a read of verse 28 because Paul he gives as like his one really good example um, same sex relationships but then he continues on he doesn't stop there verse 28 even as even And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. So again, God's giving people over to the desires of what they want. And he says he lets them do these things which are not fitting. So he's already given one example. Now he's going to give some others. And this is where perhaps things become a bit more relevant to you and I. What are these things that are a sign of, Uh, of being given over to our sinful desires. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers or gossips, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, 
that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul gets a little bit more pointed to his readers. Most of his readers probably, uh, the sin of homosexuality probably wasn't relevant to his readers. And so as they're reading that, they can probably lean back a bit and go, wow, well, I'm not like the, the pagans are, you know, I'm right with God. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gets pointed and he says, there are lots of sins that reveal that sometimes you're not in the right relationship with God. For example, being unloving or unforgiving or unmerciful. Paul says that these can be signs that our relationship with God is tenuous at best, that maybe God's given us up uh, to our sinful desires. Envy, being deceitful, any type of sexual immorality, any type. Paul says that all of these are examples of God giving over people to the desires of their heart. So now... Every reader of Romans 1 is pulled into this. At first, most people and most readers up until then could probably say, oh, well, that that doesn't include me. But now Paul basically lists every sin under the sun. And there'd be at least one or two in that list that we know we've committed or we know that we struggle with. So Paul brings all of us into this and says, all of us at times make these mistakes. And then in verse 2, this is where he really wants to ensure that his readers are being humble, that they're not pointing fingers, they're not being accusative, they're not being self-righteous, they're being humble. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge, another you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same thing. So he says, you don't get to point the finger at people and say, hey, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, when when you're doing the exact same thing. Verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Do you think this, O man, and you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So Paul's making sure that his readers are sobered by what he's saying, that they're not getting puffed up, they're not feeling self-righteous. He's saying, hey, be careful when you judge other people, particularly if you're doing the same sin. He says, you don't get to point fingers at people if you're committing the same sin. He says, God's going to hold everyone accountable, not just the people that you point fingers to. But verse 32, back in chapter 1, is very interesting because he says that there are those who practice these things, but then there are also those who approve of the practice. So there are people sitting on the sidelines giving the thumbs up to people who are sitting, saying, go for it, keep at it, nothing wrong here. And Paul says this is a big problem. In fact, it's a very unloving thing to do, isn't it? If you know that sin leads to death, that's what he says, these practices are deserving of death, and you encourage people to keep going on that path of death, that's an unloving thing to do. So, as Christians, when we read this passage, we need to be understanding that, yes, there are, uh, there are uh, terrible sins which we should avoid, 
but also that Christians must do the same. Christians must first remove the sin from their life in order or before they're to judge other people for those same sins. And that we need to be humble. When we read these sins, we go, thank God that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin and I don't have to worry about that judgment day anymore. I don't have to worry that my sins are going to bar me from heaven because Jesus has found a way for me to have eternal life in heaven with him. So, as I said, uh, in Spurgeon's day, they probably didn't even preach from this. In today's world, it's not a very popular message as well. Uh, Even just the broad list of sins that Paul gives at the end of chapter 1, people would find to be too, too combative. But in the days of Paul, it was also very controversial. So, for example, um, in the time when Paul wrote, homosexuality was very common in the upper classes of men. It was very socially uh, acceptable. There was no problem with it. And in fact, the Roman Emperor Nero, Nero, you'd know, he uh, persecuted the Christians in the 60s AD. The Roman Emperor Nero, he married a young man named Sporus. And Sporus, whenever Nero and Sporus would go out in public, Sporus was always dressed as a woman. And Nero referred to him as his wife. So not only was this a very socially acceptable in ancient Rome, it was so acceptable that the Roman Emperor could get away with it. Uh, He's the the ruler of the nation. He's like the model standard uh, for the people. And he was uh, able to do it without any uh, talking from the people. So it was very common uh, in, uh, in Paul's day. And yet Paul here is rebuking this sin along with many others. But Paul's a pretty brave guy, isn't he? The Roman emperor is committing this sin and he calls it out. And he says, this is not good. This is going against what is so obvious in God's law and in in creation and nature. This isn't how God intended for us to live life. But ancient Rome perhaps was a bit of an exception because behavior like this throughout history is, for the most part, been on the fringes. It's usually not been socially accepted. That's not an arbiter or a way to figure out what is morally right and wrong. There are lots of things that have been accepted in history that we know are terrible. Slavery, for example. Most nations and throughout most of history have practiced slavery. We know that it's a a terrible thing, not part of God's design. So obviously not what God intended. So not that culture uh, and history shows us always what is right and wrong. But it is interesting to know that um, these types of practices we see today have had a rapid increase in the last 70 years of our history here in the West. Prior to this, back in the time of Spurgeon and probably even the the early 1900s, it just wasn't a part of our culture. So how did we get to having such a big change? This is a, a small piece of history that I think is important for not only every Christian, but every person to know. How did we get to the place we are today uh, where particularly same-sex relationships and transgenderism have been accepted how did we get here 
I'm going to tell you just two brief stories uh, of the history of how we got here, and I think you'll find them very revealing and very quite saddening and upsetting, uh, sadly. So the first of these stories uh, is about a man, you've probably heard his name before, uh, a gentleman called uh, Sigmund Freud. Come back to that. Uh, a gentleman called Sigmund Freud, and uh, he's kind of you know famous as a, a psychoanalyst, psychologist. He kind of was really the forerunner of the movement. But Freud had a lot of really weird ideas. One of them was that Freud believed that infants, as soon as an infant child was born, they had um, basically sexual desires or needs. And it was his belief that babies and infants and children would find... Whoop, what happened there? Would find... Uh, Uh, solutions to their needs by any means necessary and he referred to this as polymorphous perversity very strange word but basically it was that uh, children were naturally sexually perverse and he said that only when adults uh, had these you know taboos and restrictions placed upon them was it that that perversity was then withdrawn But Freud saw all of these rules and regulations around marriage as restrictive. And so he believed that every adult should be like an infant child and be perverse to do whatever they wanted, no matter how gross or sickening or weird or strange it was, so long as they got what they felt they needed. So... Uh, Freud was the one who really set the groundwork for this idea that we should get rid of all restraints and restrictions on marriage uh, and sexuality. And many people would then build up on what Freud did, ultimately kind of culminating in the 1960s movements where uh, there was this big movement to get rid of all restrictions and taboos on marriage. The second gentleman is... uh, a guy called John Money. And this is a really a very sad story. So you may be familiar with this idea uh, that's very common today that uh, your biological sex is different from your gender identity. So biology is your physical makeup, whereas your gender identity is more uh, an intrinsic or a mental um, association. So this is typically where we find um, a, a young man or a young woman who feels that they don't uh, align with their biological body. They feel that they might be a man or a woman, even though they're biologically not so. And we use the term gender identity to explain this. So this term was created by this man, John Money. Before John Money, no one had ever thought of this idea before. And money, he wanted to find a way to prove his theory that you could be born one way, but actually be something different than what your body said. And so money decided to do an experiment with two twin boys. Uh, Sadly, one of the boys had been physically deformed. And he found these two boys and he found the parents and he proposed an experiment. The two boys would be raised identically in the same household, except that one of them would be raised from birth to be a young girl. 
And it was his belief that if that young boy could live happily as a young girl, that gender identity was therefore something fluid, something that could be changed, something that wasn't tied to the biology of who you were uh, born as. It wasn't tied to who you were physically. So the two boys were Bruce and Brian, uh, but Bruce was, well, he was originally Bruce, and then he was referred to as Brenda. So it was Brenda and his uh, twin brother, uh, sorry, yeah, Bruce and his twin brother, Brenda. Now, Brenda, uh, throughout his whole life, he was dressed, dressed as a, a young girl. He was encouraged to live uh, as a young girl, to be friends with other young girls. And all that time, he wasn't told that this was an experiment. He believed that this was his life. And yet, Bruce or Brenda continually tried to resist all of these, uh, all of these pushes from his parents and from the researcher John Money. So he would insist on trying to hang out with young boys. He insisted on uh, doing boy activities. He didn't want to do everything that the young girls his age were interested in. Uh, and in fact, uh, the two twins would regularly go to John Money to basically check in on what was going. And there came a point at age 13 where Bruce threatened to his parents that he would take his own life if they ever took him to John Money again. He was so disturbed, he was so upset and depressed that he refused to ever go there. At age 15, his parents finally decided to tell him that his whole life had been one big lie. His whole life had been one sick experiment. And that just as he'd thought for 15 years, imagine thinking that, for 15 years he was sure that he was a young boy and he kept being told that he was a young girl. Um, mind you, as a, as a child, they did physically change his body uh, as well. Surgically, they did. So at age 15, he finds out all of this. And immediately he decides to start living as a young boy. He's tired of living this lie that he had been forced into. Now, despite the fact that Bruce his whole life had tried to reject everything his parents and John Money had put on him, John Money decided that the experiment was a great success and that he had successfully uh, shown that gender identity was true, that this young boy had in fact identified as a young girl without knowing any better. And so he began to publish uh, in journals and tell his other uh, professors and researchers that his experiment had been a great success. And he didn't. Peter. Yeah, it's a bit suspect, isn't it? And uh, this experiment is the basis on which all, all of our modern ideas of gender and gender identity and transgenderism come from. They're all based on this terrible, twisted experiment. Now, the sad thing is that even after the experiment ended, these two twin boys were still deeply affected by it. In 2002, Brian was sadly found dead ODing on antidepressants. He couldn't handle the guilt 
of living a normal life while his brother had lived this terrible experiment. And in 2004, Brian, the one the experiment had done on, he also died, sadly, by his own hand. And yet, John Money said, my experiment is a success. It resulted in the two people involved in the experiment both dying by their own hand. And yet, he declared it was a great success. And today, we're still using the experiment of John Money as a success story to encourage people to express their gender identity however they feel like, based on this very sad and twisted story. (laughs) That's right. And sadly, people haven't stopped there. So people, Freud and Money, they kind of started us uh, to where we are today. But many more people have come up with more what Paul would say are foolish ideas. Things which are so plainly not in accordance with what God wants for us in life. God wants us to have life, an abundant life. He wants us to have, uh, that wants beauty in the world. And yet all of these things just produce death and pain and suffering. I won't dwell on this for too long, but the fruits that these bad ideas have created are terrible. So in uh, 2021, in April, uh, this is an Australian study, they found these fi- found uh, the following findings. LGBT, that's uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, young people aged 16 to 17 were almost three times more likely to have attempted suicide in the past 12 months. The same demographic were also five times more likely to have attempted suicide in their entire lifetime. uh, 79.7% of transgender people aged 14 to 25 reported having done self-harm in their lifetime. Transgender people aged 14 to 25 are over seven times more likely than the regular population to have depression. LGBT people in general are nearly six times more likely to have depression. The fruits that are being born out of these terrible ideas are having detrimental effects on human beings. These are people that are made in God's image, people who God loves dearly, people who Jesus died for on the cross. And as Paul says, we've got people who know that these practices lead to death and are giving the thumbs up. Now, Paul is referring to death in reference to the judgment. Not only, though, is is that true, but we can see by these statistics it's leading to death here and now. People are dying because of these terrible, foolish ideas that have come as a result of rejecting God as the supreme object of our worship. These are people who have been deeply, I believe, mistreated uh, and done unfairly by our culture, who knows these statistics, knows that most people who are in this community are are depressed and anxious uh, and are considering terrible things and yet are giving the thumbs up and encouraging them down that path 
What an unloving thing to do to people, sending them directly on a path that you know leads to suffering and death. Well, I want to conclude by looking at something a bit more uplifting. That's right. Because all of that, I believe, is incredibly important for us to know. It's important as Christians we know the history of these ideas. It's important we know the bad fruits that are coming from it. But I don't want to finish there because it's a little bit sobering. And it's important that sometimes we talk about sobering things. But I don't want to finish there. Remember, Paul says, ultimately, all these foolish ideas which hurt people that God deeply loves comes from rejecting God as the creator and denying the evidence that he is the creator of everything. And Paul, I think he's chosen this wisely because the way in which God creates the world actually points to the way in which he's designed everything perfectly. On every day which God created something, in order to bring about creation, he had to establish boundaries or separations and distinctions. So, for example, uh, the first day, God separates light from darkness. On the second day, we're told he has the waters above and below. He separates the water. On the third day, he separates the water and the dry land. On the fourth, it says God put a light in the day for the, uh, a light for the day and a light in the sky for the moon. On the fifth day, God puts the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. So he separates these two types of animals into two different uh, environments. On the sixth day, God begins by creating the animals and finishes with humanity. So again, there are two different types of creation. Then on the sixth day, he also creates man and woman, both made in God's image, both uh, with equal worth and dignity, and both really have more similarities than differences, and yet there are distinctions that bring beauty to the world. There's also even the distinction of God and humanity. They're two different things. God also creates marriage, which is a, a unique relationship from other ones, unique from friendship, unique from uh, all other types of relationships. It's special, set apart. And then uh, the seventh day, God separates, it says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. It's separate from all of the others. So you can see in the creation story, God brings about this beautiful world that's full of uh, beauty and life uh, and safety and order by actually creating distinctions and boundaries. It's the way in which he does that. Even the way that God makes humanity is very intentional and very different. So, for example... When God comes to make Eve in Genesis 2.22, the word used to describe her creation is a Hebrew word, b'nai. And it's a very unusual word because it's a word used to describe building uh, or creating buildings and architecture. So why use a word to describe buildings and architecture when making Eve? Yeah, well, whenever you need to make a building, you first need to lay down some blueprints, don't you? You need to know what it is you're making before you make a start. So there has to be intentionality and design into it. And so it appears that God put the same intentionality and forethought and design into making Eve that we would for a building 
or uh, for, for a piece of architecture. And it goes to show that God had in mind that Eve would be created perfectly for Adam. And it also in part that Adam would be perfectly made for Eve. There's intentionality behind their creation. So creation is a beautiful example and a beautiful way of showing to us that God creates beauty and life and abundant life in a world in which people follow what God has designed for them. As we look around us, our culture has suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. They've decided that they would rather worship man than God. And we've seen that it has terrible consequences on people who God dearly loves and has died for. And so I want to propose that there are three things that we can do in light of our message this morning. The first is stand firm. Stand firm and rooted in what we believe in as Christians. Christians throughout all of history, all throughout different types of things, have been pressured by the culture around them to compromise and change. Today it's uh, stuff to do with LGB activism. A hundred years ago it was something different. A hundred years before that, the church has stood strong through every adversity that the culture around them has thrown. Stand firm in the faith that God has given to us. Secondly, share truth. We have a truth, the truth of creation, that shows people how to live a life of abundance, a life free from anxiety, free from sadness, a life that can be ultimately fulfilling when lived for God. And thirdly, stay humble. That's what Paul wrote in the the back half of Romans 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Don't just look at the sins of other people. Recognize that you too have been rescued from your sin by God. And when we continually remember that we need and depend on God so much, we're humbled before him and our walk with God's going to be so much better because of that humility that we have. Let's be rooted in our faith. Let's share our faith with other people. And let's walk humbly with God every day, never straying from that path that is going to lead us to heaven. Let us stand firm, share truth, and stay humble before God.